I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm KSL's Debbie Worthen. Four years ago, my son Asher was diagnosed with autism. After getting our footing, we decided it was time to celebrate the news with all of you. And that's how Celebrating the Spectrum was born. Each week, we consult with the experts and others who are learning to navigate life with a loved one who has special needs. This is a place where we find hope, look for solutions, and connect with those working to create a better world of inclusion. Hey there, I'm glad you're with us today for Celebrating the Spectrum. So I've been going over all of our past interviews, and I have loved each of them for the different perspectives that they've brought to us here on the show. So today I want to give you a few clips of my favorite interviews. Earlier this year, I was scrolling through Instagram, and there was an autistic influencer who posted the five books that every parent of an autistic child needs to read. So one of those was called Uniquely Human by Dr. Barry Prezant. Well, as I was reading, I was very drawn to this book because I could tell Dr. Prezant's genuine curiosity and love for the autistic people he was meeting has helped uh, shape much of the research that has bucked the ideas of society on autism. He studied autism for 50 years, and as we all know, the narrative has changed dramatically, and I believe he's been an integral part of shaping that. So listen to part of our conversation together. Uh, yeah, um, I was a kid growing up in New York City um, and uh, in a middle, lower middle class family. And my father was able to get me a job working in this print shop in Manhattan. I remember it was noisy and greasy. And my girlfriend was working upstate New York, as we say, outside of the city. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and it was a camp for she was a musician and she was a music teacher for children and adults with disabilities. And she said, Barry, you know, we need another counselor. Uh, we just fired one. Could you come up? And I said, oh, God, yeah, I'd love to get out of the city. Uh, first time out of the city for me. Uh-huh. I was 17. And I landed in, in this camp, which, you know, looking back now, Quality-wise, wasn't the greatest, mm-hmm. but the people I met, my campers, I just kind of fell in love with working with children and adults. And, and um, also, uh, I was beginning school um, in psycholinguistics, so I was very interested in language and language development. So there was this intellectual interest as well. Why did these people have such problems communicating? Mm-hmm. Um, and that carried me through into speech pathology and communication disorders and six more years of working at summer camps. What year was that? That was 19... I'm trying to I always try to remember because I went to Woodstock. <laughs> <laughs> and Woodstock is 1969, and I think this was... Probably it was the summer of 69. Okay, so, oh, there's a song about that, isn't there? (laughs) All right, you know, so things have changed so much in that time. That time. What was it about those people at that camp, those kids, that made you want to learn more? Because you describe in your book how you just enjoyed them so much. Yeah, I I think a a lot of it was, um, and actually one of the themes of of uniquely human is this, that I wanted to understand why they did things that they did. Um, So there was a a young man um, named Stephen, I remember, and he had this uncanny ability uh, 
to wake up in the middle of the night. That wasn't the uncanny part. But <laughs> I'm like, I have that would, too. Would, <laughs> but he would put on um, the new James Taylor album that just came out, and he would always be able to find the song, In My Mind, I'm Going to Carolina. And so at 2 or 3 in the morning every night, he would go over to the old record player, find the song, turn it on, and rock and sing along with James Taylor. And uh, he had an incredible memory for music. Um, so that was like, wow, that, that's something else here. Hey. But there was, I, I could tell you so many stories of the individual kids. Um, you know, I, I talk at the beginning of my book about this adult um, on the spectrum named Uncle Eddie. And Uncle Eddie just went on complimenting everybody all the time. You know, mm-hmm. so he, he would come up to me, and I, I think I gave this example in the book, come up to me and say, Barry, you look so handsome today. Right. And yeah, just I, I was interacting with people who behaved in very different ways, and I wanted to understand that, even though I was finding even some of the counselors, the senior counselors, were trained to have the kids stop doing a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually ended up being my doctoral dissertation a number of years later in understanding why um, a lot of people on the spectrum repeat speech, which is called echolalia. Right. Um, uh, so it, it's, I don't know, I was interested both, uh, I was fulfilled emotionally helping out these kids and adults, but I was fulfilled intellectually as well. Right. Um, in that it, it, it drove me to want to study what was going on and have a different way of looking at these individuals. Yes. Well, what's amazing for me when I read your work, it's so refreshing to see someone who has so much knowledge, who studied this for years and really has a love for the people themselves. You know, you you don't ever go into this like we need to fix these autistic kids. And I want to I want to talk about that, because in the time frame that you started your studies, that was sort of the the mindset. These kids are broken. We need to fix this. We need to fix this problem. How did you or why did you think, no, they're not broken. We don't need to fix them. We need to understand them. What was your thought process there? I was so fortunate from very, very early on to choose a focus on child and human development in my studies. So I was in programs for, I'm a speech language pathologist, and I was in programs for speech and language. But when I went up for my doctorate, almost all my coursework was in developmental psychology. Now, why is this important? Because if you look at every person as an evolving human being, it gets you away from, and the term that I, I started using a number of years ago, is it gets you away from pathologizing the person. You want to understand why they do what they do. How does that fit into where this person is in their developmental journey, in language, in emotional development? So I was, I was very fortunate. So many people in the field started out in trying to fix kids mm-hmm. and, and pathologizing kids. And actually some very good people in the field now say, oh, but then I learned that was the wrong way mid-career. I never had to make that change because I had wonderful mentors and my studies were all about child and human development. I studied multicultural aspects of development. How is it that kids growing up in Africa in an agricultural society can be emotionally healthy and as healthy emotionally as kids growing up in upper class families in the United States? Mm-hmm. Um, and it asked the answer, by the way, is responsive caregiving. That wow. when caregivers are 
be responsive to children, then children gain trust, they feel grounded, Mm -hmm. um, and they take risks in development. You know, they're they're just good, solid individuals. So I, I was always exposed to what is called developmental approaches to understanding development. At the time, some of one of the founders of applied behavior analysis, Dr. Lovas, you know, was saying, well, when kids repeat speech, that's psychotic speech. We have to punish that. Mm -hmm. Or if they flap their hands, we have to punish that. Um, And unfortunately, you know, that led to not only a lot of problems, but now adults on the spectrum are saying, some are saying they were traumatized right. by those kinds of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so, my, so I don't want to get into the weeds too much on that part. Mm-hmm. But the point is, people like the late Dr. Lovas and some of his colleagues, and I'm going to be quite frank, yeah. knew nothing about child and human development. Interesting. They knew about changing behavior using operant conditioning approaches. But when I look back now even and look at some of the writings from that school of thought back then, I say, oh, my goodness, you know, a master's student in speech and language knows more about language development than what these people were saying back then. You cannot respect an individual child or a person and the challenges they have as well as their strengths unless you know something about child and human development. And that's what I taught and continue to teach, you know, in all my workshops and and when I teach university students, yes. One of our first guests on the show was someone I knew I wanted to talk to. It was Jennifer Cook. So Jennifer is autistic. She was diagnosed in her adult life. I discovered her as I was watching the Netflix original Love on the Spectrum U.S., First of all, she has an incredibly likable demeanor, and with her experiences, she brings an incredible perspective. Take a listen. I had always felt like I was playing the game of life without the directions, hmm. and everybody else seemed to have them. And it was it was in those areas, like I said, in the areas where there weren't explicit directions that I would stumble and fall, and it didn't make sense because the constant feeling that I've described, and I've gotten a lot of yeses and nodding heads to this before, is um, that constant duality of feeling, how can I be so smart and so stupid at the same time? Oh, interesting. And that is, yeah, and that's a heartbreaker. Yeah, and, and what does that do to a person's self-esteem? You know, it breaks it. Um, because you can't, it's like, um, you know, there's the expression, right? Pulling the rug out from, from under you. It, well, it's more like pulling the rug out from under yourself over and over and not knowing how you're doing it. And like, um, and, and probably when, thinking like, how come everyone else can figure this out? Like, I'm a smart completely. person. Yeah. Right. And and people lose patience with that. Right. And, you know, at a certain point, it's hard to convince someone that you're not being, oh, lazy or self-centered or flippant or whatever the case may be. But you genuinely are not getting something that to them seems obvious. But it's no different than saying, well, you know, I don't know why you can't pick up a second language like like I can or something like that. Right. 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 It's it's just it's just the opposite. Um yeah. So, I mean, the, the most pressing part of being on the spectrum is something called mind blindness or theory of mind, which is challenged. So theory of mind is basically the organic, easy, you know, natural ability to step into somebody else's perspective, somebody else's shoes without having to really think about it. That's something that we can't do. Mind blindness. We cannot do it organically. We can learn to do it, however, which is because we don't do it naturally. That's where you get the stereotype of somebody who's extremely uncaring, no empathy, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, it can be empathy to the point of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what happens is you have to be taught, okay, to stop and try to figure out what might somebody else, how might somebody else hear this? Why might they think about it this way? Hmm. It doesn't, it simply doesn't occur to you. Right. And you have to learn situation to situation to situation. The ironic thing is that most of the world doesn't really take the time to step into our shoes and see what it might be like. It's not so <laughs> um, ironic. Yes. It, yeah. yeah. You're right. You're right. So, okay, yeah. so, so how it, much what does how, it do to your soul? It yeah, can be crushing. Oh, it's yeah. crushing. Exactly. I, I can't even imagine. So how much would knowing you are on the spectrum through your formative years change things mm-hmm. for you? I think it might have changed them greatly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that so there really is um, an epidemic of eating disorders and dating violence uh, among girls on the, the spectrum in particular. Mm. Um, incredibly, incredibly vulnerable to and both are um, deadly, um, for sure. Um, I suffered from anorexia, I battled anorexia. When I was in college, I was in a violent relationship. I am certain that um, that would not have happened. Uh, if you know, if I had understood it felt perhaps more, there's an expression I used to say that if you feel like you're difficult to love, you'll you're willing to love for crumbs uh, yeah and i think mm-hmm. yeah that's what you and feel that's I, what you believe you're worthy of yeah. that's all you Absolutely. believe you're worthy of mm-hmm. and when you get that you know attention especially if it's big and broad and 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 public kind mm-hmm. of thing mm-hmm. then you you will do anything to make sure that stays because and you'll tolerate anything to make sure it stays because you've spent your life um kind of fighting tooth and nail for me i was in high school when i was 15 i got the lead in our um school musical which was damn yankees and that old song whatever lola wants lola gets <laughs> uh that was me doing a striptease at 15 which is a whole conversation in yeah. and of itself really. yeah right <laughs> but but, um, you know, that really changed my life. And the thing is, you know, you can become, this sort of leads us into the show that, mm-hmm. you know, we've been talking about Love right. and Spectrum, um, that uh, you can become exceedingly good at flirting. I literally had the nickname The Flirt, hmm. uh, which is not, which I thought was adorable and cute um, and very different than Dictionary Head, you know? Yeah, um, right. <laughs> but, different from The Professor. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, but by the same token, if you don't really know the power of the words that you're saying, you mm-hmm. can get yourself in in some seriously dangerous situations. Yes. And so um, I can look back and think, my God, if I had known, if I had been able to, I remember very clearly asking my mom, I think I was about seven and saying to her, can you teach me how to make friends? Hmm. Oh, that is just so heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Yeah, I wrote a letter to Santa asking for friends one year oh. for Christmas. So, oh I mean, my gosh! But I know, I know. And, and, I just want to like hug that little girl. Oh, and your mom but knew my, nothing. You know, she was just trying no, to get through like, this too. She doesn't know what's going on. Completely. And I'm an only child. This was the first go round, you mm. know. And um, she said, you know, that she just kind of looked at me and she just said something to the effect of, "You just do." Mm. But the problem is, I couldn't just do. I right. would have. I would have absolutely oh, just done. Yeah. But I didn't know how. Yeah. Right. Okay. So let, let's uh, talk about why. You, and I think I know the answer to this. But why did you decide to start writing books? So 
You know, I would love to say that I decided. I didn't. It was really a, a fluke. And this is where I am very much of the belief that my career over the last 10 years has been something that was, you know, quote unquote, meant to be and not something mm. that's so um, indicative of me being the most amazing thing that's, you know, since I spread. Uh-uh. I think that um, basically there's an expression that if three people tell you something in a week's time, it's the angels talking to you. I don't know about that. But what I do know is that my kids were in the typical OT, you know, occupational therapy doing sensory stuff and um they had this special the psychologist to work on play therapy you know blah 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 blah, all the things that they were doing yeah and the experts were asking me hey so why do you do that with your kids why do you teach them that way why do you play with them that way why Mm -hmm. do you why do you talk to them that that way and the questions weren't coming in a way that was accusatory but genuinely inquisitive uh, you know, my answer was just, I don't know. This is how I think. Apparently, it's how they think, too. It right. just makes sense. Um, and, and it was working. And it was working. Yeah. And so one of them said, well, you should start a school, which I thought was hysterical with three children. <laughs> under the age of 10. <laughs> but, um, you know, they you know? Saw, the thing is, I, I know where they're coming from. They see this need and they're like, oh, you get it. You know what you're doing. You Do should it. start a school. And you're like, are you just kidding me? Exactly. Are you kidding me? Right, like, right. Sorry. I'm just busy trying to make sure the minivan is, is packed, you know. Exactly. Um, but, but they said, you know, you should write a book. And again, I sort of got dismissive. And the one psychologist said, you know, I genuinely think you could change the world, the way the world sees people with autism mm-hmm. or Asperger's at the time. Right. Um, kids with Asperger's. And how do you say no if there's something you can do that might benefit children? Oh, like my gosh. Just, Especially in this can. realm, you know, where we're I mean, my my big mission is you know, mm-hmm. inclusion in the world and for everyone to be able to celebrate the spectrum the way and, and the reason we chose the name celebrate the spectrum is yeah. because I yeah. do believe it. it's something to be celebrated. You know, I mean, look at all of yeah. your amazing and unique qualities that you may or may not have if you weren't autistic. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. You, you, we can't imagine any of us, right? You delete one part and what else goes right. along with it. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So, so basically, truthfully, I sat down in six weeks and I wrote a book hmm. and here, here's where the magic happens is I submitted it to me. That was the, the bravest thing I've done in my life. Wasn't, it's not <laughs> been standing in front of giant audiences or whatever else. No, no, no. It was submitting my first manuscript because huh. there was such a risk of rejection, but the, it was received apparently somehow made it to the CEO's desk of the of the publisher by that that was a Monday by Friday I had a contract wow and I I know and like had another contract before the first book was out and it just exploded well that there there was a need you know there was a need I'm Dave Cauley investigative journalist and host of the podcast cold Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. From this perspective... Next is Candace Christiansen. So I've known Candace since high school. She's a very well-known sex therapist here in Salt Lake City, Utah. In fact, I hosted a lifestyle show here on the CBS affiliate for years, and she was a regular guest on the show. Somewhere in that time frame, she realized she was autistic. This information has helped her in almost every area of her life. 
So she came on and she talks about how she and her husband, who is neurotypical, have been able to work through some of their differences. There were things that I would do, for instance, Chris and I would be at a grocery grocery store and I would be in someone's personal space mm. in the line and he would have to pull me back. I just, no spatial awareness, Debbie, you know, or like sitting there and I'd be chewing gum with my mouth open, like just not, mm. you know, just not aware. And it's not, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm very different focused, diversity focused, not deficit, Mm -hmm. but to get to where you're going, you know, what is going on with me? There were, there were those things. And then melting down at things, I mean, severe meltdowns with Chris, where it was like, okay, what is happening? Like, this is not a situation where I should be having such a strong emotional reaction you know, and then staff saying you're unprofessional, because again, I was very like finding that things would cause me to react really strongly, not being aware of my sensory sensitivities or my environment. Those things, you know, I started doing research, like you said, Jared did. But I was doing it for a while and asking my therapist friends who are not autism specialists, Mm -hmm. who would again, say, Oh, no, you're give my God, you're not. So I questioned myself. But again, I had this feeling like it's, I know I am every time I was taking an Mm -hmm. assessment online, it fit. (laughs) So it was very emotional and very reassuring for me. It was very reassuring. And then I also went through kind of a grieving process which I think a lot of autistic adults do where it's like, well, what would this have meant if I was diagnosed sooner? And, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. what does this label mean for me? I was very scared at first to, to make it public, you know, and Debbie, I went on another station and I had, they had asked me to come on and I was going to talk about mindfulness. And I said, Hey, you know, I actually shared, I was autistic. The whole interview changed to me being autistic. Mm-hmm. And it was, that was traumatic for me. Mm -hmm. And then they never invited me back on. So there was this experience of, is something wrong with me because I've owned that this is who I am. There's also some of that Mm -hmm. in a world that still does have a lot of microaggressions against autistic people and stigma and stereotypes. So it's been a roller coaster. (laughs) Well, well, I love that you put it out there because when we, when we first had Asher's diagnosis, we were just like, this is just our family thing, you know, and we're not going to mm-hmm. be loud and proud about it. And, yeah. and, and, yeah. Then, and then I really had a huge pivot because I, I was just like, if I want true inclusion, which that's my long-term mission, yeah. that's no secret. That's part of the description of the podcast. You know, I want Good. true inclusion. It means being out there, being open, letting Asher be his true self, live his authentic yes. life publicly around people, not stopping him. I mean, obviously, if he's like really, you know, mm-hmm. tearing a place apart or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, someone can't enjoy a football game because he's, you know, like just being yeah. a little too crazy, then I'll step in at that time. But I I want this to be the norm. I want us yes. to live in a new world where there's not the stigma. This is mm-hmm. diversity. And I mean, come on, everyone talks about the the value of diversity all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, let's mm-hmm. let's take it here too, you know. So yeah. but I'm sure that yeah. was very hard for you because your identity, I'm guessing, had been highly associated with your professional success as a therapist. Mm-hmm. As a therapist and also someone who was on the, in the media a lot, right? I, mean, I was on with you a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and so 
it's scary. I also learned to like watch how people would talk and mannerisms and how to dress and it, that's all masking. Mm -hmm. And I call it traumatic masking now because it's really trauma. It's traumatic for those of us that have to try and fit in by camouflaging who we are. It's exhausting. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I mean, I can't even imagine that. Okay. So so your podcast, let's talk about your podcast. It's called Fabulously Candace, the sexiest podcast about neurodivergence. So I listened to the first episode, loved it. Um, talk about what you discuss on your podcast and, and why you decided to do it. Well, it's definitely been an evolution. Chris and I actually started it together and then with our business, I, you know, went on my own and I changed the name at the first of the year. I want to give credit to Jude Morrow, who's a, he's in the United Kingdom and he has neurodiversity gold podcast. And he said, just in this beautiful accent of his, you should actually name your podcast Fabulously Candace, the sexiest podcast about neurodivergence, because no one is really talking about intimacy and autism at that level. And so I was scared to do that kind of change, you know, mid stride, whatever, but I did. And it's been really fun. We talk to autistic individuals, mixed neurotype couples, um, you know, professionals about autism and sex relationships, mm -hmm. intimacy, communication, you know, pro like challenging issues in relationship, problematic sexual behavior, you name it, we talk about it, we go there. So, so as far as relationships go, how, how have relationships evolved for you? You know, yeah. from teenage years to young <laughs> adult to now, like, you know, being a successful adult, I'd say that a successful adult, <laughs> an oh, emotionally <laughs> successful adult. Um, how, how has that changed? And looking back, do you feel like you fit into that group of women who, who got into oh. some of those situations? And now you can look back and say that that probably was partly due to, to this, this part of me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, would even though I was cautious about drinking, I've always been cautious about drinking. Um, I grew up with an alcoholic mother, so I've always just been really cautious about drinking alcohol, for instance. But there's research that shows a lot of autistic people will get involved in substances, and I think a part of that is masking to fit in. So with friend groups, they would just try to how can I fit in? It was it was always really hard. I could have one friend, but if it got to more than one, I didn't know how to navigate that. Mm. I just I, I couldn't keep up. And I also would really anger a lot of my friends starting in, I think I'm trying to think elementary school, but I can think of so many embarrassing times, junior high and high school, Debbie, oh my gosh, where I just, oh, I've had to do my own personal amends with my higher power about it because I would just have meltdowns or I would make them angry because I would insult them. And I would say things that were I'd be upset. And instead of handling it the way that you're quote supposed to, mm. my emotions would get the best of me and I would melt down. And so since my diagnosis, I, so many people are compassionate and kind and loving, and I've actually been able to develop some really beautiful, authentic friendships. Mm. I don't have a lot of friends. I'm not going to say like, I have a big friend group. I don't. Um, it's Chris and I against the world. Pretty much but do most family. people have a lot of friends? I just wonder that. I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm friendly, I, but I have like a handful. That's yeah. it. Of like truly close people, confidants. Yeah. Some people like that. But for, for us, I think, and I'm so grateful that Chris is like this. We just, we just love our time. Mm -hmm. And 
And I'm thankful for that because if I was with, in my previous marriage, I was with someone who was a social butterfly. Mm. And I do know other autistic folks who love being social and I'm just not one. Right. <laughs> I, I, you know, especially if there's topics that I just don't relate to at all whatsoever. It's very, it's boring to me. I want to have, I don't like small talk. I want deep conversation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't like that. So, but as I've gotten older, I have developed some really beautiful, authentic friendships. I don't have a lot, but but, but they're really worthwhile now and, and very accepting. Um, I haven't changed when you said, you know, you liked that I was kind and I just didn't play games. Mm -hmm. I still don't play games. Right. And I think that's what my closest, dearest friends love about me is that I am. I'm just authentic, real and kind and loving. And I'm, I'm here. I'm loyal. Oh, my gosh. Jared Stewart. This man is such a great conversationalist. So we met him through another guest that we had on the show. Jared also got that autism diagnosis in his adult life. So he works at Scenic View Academy, which is designed to build autonomy, competence, and connections of young adults with neurodevelopmental differences. Take a listen. I knew I was different, right? Mm -hmm. So I grew up on an island in Alaska, and for a long time I told people, you know, I'm from an island in Alaska, and that was my that was my label. Wait, our producer Ryan just told us a dad joke, but that sounds like the beginning of a dad joke right there. <laughs> I grew up on an island in Alaska. Well, no, it was just the basis of, like, everything. So if I had really poor abilities to, like, socialize or remember people's names, it's like, oh, well, you know, I grew up on an island in Alaska, mm -hmm. and there was more bears than people, right, you know? And, yeah. And if I didn't fit in, you know, with my fashion sense or anything, it's like, oh, well, you know, I grew up on an island in Alaska, and we ordered out of catalogs. We didn't have stores and stuff, and... You know, and if I couldn't drive in a city because there's too much sensory information going on, it's like, well, you know, I grew up on an island and we only had one stoplight. And, you know, I mean, so I, I could use it for a lot of things. And it's funny. Yeah. And yeah. yet inside I knew I'm different right. and even dif very different than the people who grew up on this island. Right. You know, <laughs> it's like if other people from this island knew it, I was from Kodiak. If other people from Kodiak knew it, they'd be like, mm, but I'm not that way at yeah, all. Yeah. Yeah. And so I had a lot of other, you know, terms I'd applied to myself. I was. I was crazy. I was dumb. I was, you know, I was insane. I was. Now, these are terms by you or others? Myself, sometimes from others. I was a geek. I was a nerd, you know, all of these things. Um, but I was different and I knew I was kind of covering it up and trying to fit into uh, a neurotypical world without knowing those words even. Um, and so I made it through college and had a lot of ups and downs. Um, but I, and I got married. I successfully got married. Mm -hmm. and You're still and married? I am still Same married. Same person? Same person. Good, congrats. Coming up on 25 years next Congratulations. year. Congratulations. Right? Every year is an accomplishment. It is. Yes. Absolutely. I, I give grace to her. <laughs> She's been great. <laughs> she put up with a lot of, well, you know, I grew up on an island in Alaska. <laughs> She's when like, we first if married. I ever hear that again. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had to explain to her why, why when I walked in the house from the hot outdoors and we had air conditioning inside and that change in temperature made it so that like getting touched was physically painful for me mm -hmm. and she'd want to like give me a big hug as I walk in the door and I had to explain why I was like kind of pushing her away <laughs> instead of giving her a hug and so you know she had put up with a lot of that but, but I, isn't it great you knew that yeah I at least had that self-awareness yeah. but I didn't have a name for it yeah. and long story short I actually started at Scenic View Academy a little over 20 years ago mm -hmm. And I was, it was like right out of college or what? I, I'd done a couple of years of teaching junior high and then, oh, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Hats I, off to you. Well, yeah. And I determined I, I could not do that. And, and my hat's off to all junior high teachers, yeah. but I was going to go into special ed and I was going to go to grad school for that. And I needed a summer job and I got hired as a tutor at Scenic View Academy. And my very first day sitting down with another student, we were reading, I was like, okay, what are we doing? He's like, well, we're practicing reading. I'm okay. What are we reading? We're reading the Oasis Guide to Asperger's Syndrome. 
I'm like, I have no idea what that is. And so we're sitting here reading and I'm like, wait, tell me more about this Asperger's. What, what is this? And what is, you know, can I borrow this book when we're done reading this? Because all of a sudden, all these things that I didn't even realize were related in my life, all of a sudden just came together and made so much sense. And I was like, oh my gosh. I'm, so I self-diagnosed, mm-hmm. which a lot of adults do, mm-hmm. um, especially biological females will self-diagnose long before they ever actually get a diagnosis. Um, because we don't fit, you know, the mold of, you know, you were a nonverbal kid. I was a hyperverbal kid. Yeah, that's right? my, my son's like that, too. Yeah. yeah, I talked early and have not shut up since. So <laughs> it's, you know, just different degrees. But I, I, you know, and then not too long after that, my youngest brother got officially diagnosed with autism. Oh, interesting. And so then I was like, oh. How old was he at the time? He was in his late teens. Okay. And yeah. I want to say. Um, Do you think it was maybe kind of a generational thing that you didn't get that diagnosis earlier? Because we, it, it yeah. was, well, we I mean, didn't know. You think about it, right? I mean, the stereotype was Dustin Hoffman in, in Rain Man. It, it was. And, and a book I was reading says, you know, if there's ever something that's big in the world, Tom Cruise plays a role in it. You know? and, right. and that really brought autism kind of to the U.S. and the forefront, that, that stereotypical savant autism yeah. mm-hmm. okay so for for us old people go back and watch rain man mm-hmm. watch tom cruise's performance because his character also could be a portrayal of autism interesting i need to do that you do yeah. go back yeah. and watch from that that perspective of here's someone who really actually is faking his social skills mm-hmm. someone who really rather than being honest to a fault he's lying all the time here's somebody who is you know really doesn't know how to connect with others mm-hmm. doesn't have a lot of empathy you know and yet through the movie, you see his character arc, but it's like I've met a lot of autistic adults who are Tom Cruise in Rain Man. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've met a few autistic adults who are Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man. Right. And of course, there's a great saying Temple Grandin has, which is if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. It's my favorite. When I heard that for the first time, it was just like the light went on. I yeah. love that. All right. So so you self-diagnose. Then what happens? Um, so I called up the University of Illinois and said, I'm not coming to grad school. I'm going to work at this scenic view place. And after several years there, I finally got up the courage to go get officially diagnosed because I wanted to be able, I didn't need the services, right? And so the struggle with the diagnosis is, do I do I actually need these services? Do I need these benefits? Is it helpful? For me, it was a piece of identity that was very important. But for that very reason, it was hard to go get diagnosed because I was scared to death. The therapist was going to be like, no, no, you're too high functioning. And I hate that term, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're too high functioning. You can't be autistic. And so I went into the therapist and I had a whole presentation prepared. And I had Car- like, Carrie told us about this. Oh, this is hilarious. I had, I had all of my old, my mom, who is probably also on the spectrum, never throws <laughs> anything away. Mom, I love you, but you're, you know it. And the, uh, and she, she had all of my old like preschool papers and kindergarten write-ups and all this stuff. And I brought it all in and, you know, the therapist opens up with, well, so what brings you to my office today? Let and me I'm show like, you my thesis. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> funny you should ask. And, you know, I'm bringing it all up and I'm showing all the papers and everything. And if I'd had a PowerPoint, I would have done a PowerPoint. And I was just a few minutes into this and he's like, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Yes, you, you've got, you've got autism. Yeah. Let's talk. Yeah. And I. It was one of the few times in my life I've just cried because it was such an emotional release for me. So it was very much, yes, it's a condition, but it's also made so much sense to me as my identity and then Mm -hmm. things that had not made sense before and labels I'd put on myself that suddenly I had a hook to hang it all on and I could actually like know this is, yeah, this is is who I am. And also because of that, here are the challenges I'm going to be facing, Mm -hmm. but also the strengths I'm going to have and... And that's, again, been a, a cornerstone of my career for the last couple of decades then, because it's fascinating to be, so I'm, I'm a child of autism, I'm, a, I'm an adult with autism, I've got a child with autism, I've got siblings with autism, 
And one of my autistic special interests is autism. And so that's worked out pretty well. That's worked out well. <laughs> that's been, that was, it seems like a natural fit. But it's so funny because my life, I never thought would going that, in mm-hmm. that direction at all. Well, we just didn't picture that. No. Right? No. And, I, and again, yeah, growing up, it's like autism wasn't a thing. Yeah. No, it, we talk so much about this on the show because mm-hmm. I'm in my late 40s and... As a kid, I didn't know any autistic kids. And I do now, looking back. No, several, you know. But we didn't even, we had no interaction with even the kids with special needs. No, there was no mainstreaming. There was none of that, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And the numbers as of last year, the CDC's latest numbers, it's one in 44 Mm -hmm. on the autism spectrum. And and that breaks down to 4% of boys. So one in 25 biological males is on the autism spectrum. Finally, we will end with Danish Mumtaz. So Danish lives in Pakistan with his family. His son Soleiman is autistic. Danish is a commercial director. Now, he and his family moved to Pakistan to create an environment of inclusion there. He talks about how the culture there plays a huge role in getting or not getting autistic people the acceptance and the resources that they need. So take a listen to Danish. Okay, so you get the diagnosis. Your wife like takes action, starts getting him into you know a bunch of therapies that he needs. And what did you start to learn about the climate for people and kids with special needs? In and you weren't in Pakistan at the time, right? No, I was. I was. We were happily living in Dubai for okay. the last uh, you know decade or so. Right. And so, what what was the climate for people with special needs in Dubai? Dubai is always a very progressive city, so Dubai did have a lot of autism awareness, but that was from the government. On a day-to-day general man perspective, we still don't have autism awareness, and that's not the fault of anybody. I think it's just uh, it's just one of those things that unless you have it or you know somebody who has it, you really don't understand. And you know, autism autism is is so different from. For example, somebody who has um, Down syndrome, for example. Well, it's invisible. You know, it is invisible. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that for for me, that's been maybe harder, you know, with my son because kids, while they are amazing and they can be taught, um, you know, inclusion at such a young age, if they don't know and don't understand, they're just like, what is this weird kid doing? You know, where they can't see what is happening. And I think that's been one of the things that's been so eye-opening for me. But as you're talking about that day-to-day awareness, you know, in my opinion, that's why it's so important for us to be doing the things that we're doing right now, like doing the podcast, talking about it, going into the schools, really bringing it to the forefront. Because, you know, if one in 50, and I know that number is not accurate, let's say one in 40 to 50 kids is diagnosed with autism in the world, and in some areas it's higher, you know, than others, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people with autism out there. And... So when you meet those families or those people who just really have no experience with it, it's they actually do have experience with it. They just don't know it because no one's been at the forefront of bringing it out. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I agree 100 percent. I mean, and, and this is funny because you are talking from an American perspective, right, where there is far more awareness, um, you know, and far more tolerance for something with special needs. Whereas I have experienced it in a country like Dubai, which is very progressive, all the way down to Malaysia for the last seven years, and now in Pakistan. Um, and I think I can fairly say that um, anywhere you go across the globe, 
parents of autistic children are saying exactly the same thing. There's a lack of awareness. There's a lack of services. I had a, I had a cousin who had a special needs child and in Canada because they heard, oh, you know, there's better treatment there. And then they went there and realized, actually, that's not true. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So what, what are, what is the climate in Pakistan? You know, what are you finding there? And what do you find is the need and, and, you know, acceptance level there in Pakistan? It's a pretty dire situation. I mean, I don't want to sound like a negative Nelly or anything, but I mean, what's happened is that we came here, we arrived here about six months ago, and we've never lived in Pakistan. Um, so when we moved here, my wife Farah, she, her goal, her dream was to open up an, an academy that would train adults sort of age 10, 12 years onwards to about, you know, 2025, give them vocational skills to lead a more independent life. And so Farah opened this uh, academy and we only had about five or six kids in. But that's when we started talking to parents and um, here. And so the problem was this. Number one, there is no acceptance. So uh, it's a very patriarchal society. So uh, generally men were really, really against the idea of accepting a child that was not normal. Oh my gosh, so, so what tough. We found was, uh, absolutely. So what we found was mothers running around looking for services and trying to get their children included in schools and, um, you know, trying to pay for all of these services. Oh, which my gosh. We could bankrupt know. a family. Right. Absolutely. Autism is incredibly expensive. And so um, they're trying to do all these things whilst at the same time battling a joint family system with brothers and sisters and in-laws and God knows how many people in the family. And trying to explain to them that, you know, my child is different, but he's still my child. And we've had some really bad stories about, you know, women telling me that the father's literally sort of just, you know, sort of given up, right? So so we get these stories all the time and and I, they, they're after me to speak to their husbands and their brothers and stuff and, and talk about it. And that's also difficult because... Um, you know, in a society like Pakistan, having somebody else's wife talk to a guy like me to say, can you speak to my husband? I mean, that in itself is going to put up a barrier in front of the husband saying, why am I speaking to this person? Right. So, so how, <laughs> what has the response been like from family and friends? So the thing is, people are desperate for um, treatment there, there are two big challenges here. One is the policy that my child has to go to a mainstream school. And so there are parents bent on somehow getting therapy to get a child ready enough to be able to sit in a classroom, mm -hmm. regardless of how much value he actually gets out of it. Right. Um, homeschooling is absolutely not an option. I hope you've enjoyed these clips from the first few months of our podcast. I'm learning so much every week as my family and I navigate the exciting world of neurodiversity. What's been incredible already is meeting people that are also celebrating the spectrum along with us. So please follow, subscribe, and leave your comments for us wherever you get your podcasts. Celebrating the Spectrum is a KSL podcast.
I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.